In 2018, the issue of immigration is rarely off the headlines. Coming off the Obama presidency, the administration with the highest number of deportations, the Trump administration has also taken to upending the way immigration laws are enforced in the United States. The changes have been big and small. Trump has canceled programs that granted protections to vulnerable immigrants like the Young Dreamers who benefited from President Barack Obama's Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program, or Haitians who are unable to return home after the 2010 earthquake. Changes have also been more insidious, such as an increase in immigration raids at workplaces or the elimination of deportation priorities, meaning that any undocumented immigrant could be targeted at any point. But the story of immigration is, by its very nature, also an international one. Economic and social instability in the region can be a predictor of increased migration, and the perception of increased opportunities in the United States is a major pull factor for individuals willing to uproot. It remains to be seen if the Trump administration would be willing to deport those seeking asylum or refuge back to dangerous environments, which could constitute a violation of the international principle of non-refoulement. Others historically skipped any process and illegally crossed the border into the United States or simply overstayed their visas. They have taken any jobs they could find in order to provide for their children, at times, jobs other Americans did not want to take. These families have become deeply embedded in cities and communities, and many native-born Americans wonder if their own neighborhoods will be eroded as deported immigrants leave entire livelihoods behind. Other Americans are glad to see them go, arguing that their presence depresses wages for native workers. The loss of immigrant protections or an increase in deportation might also slow down progress in meeting the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, a set of 17 targets meant to ensure decent work and build safe cities and communities by 2030, among other objectives. My name is Isabella Narvaez, a student journalist from Georgetown University. What follows is the stories of four immigrants living and working in four corners of the United States, New York City, Los Angeles, Orlando, Florida, and Washington, D.C. In New York City, Roberto is a Guatemalan-born immigrant who works at a Broadway Avenue food truck. He is in the process of getting his papers, but lives in daily fear knowing his workplace and the whole street could be targeted at any time by immigration officials. Okay, uh, Roberto, first of all, when did you come to the U.S. and why did you come to the U.S.? I come around the 2015. Um, why I come and because in my country, so many difficulties to, to live. Uh, I come to America to take uh, a better future. When did you set this business of food outside Columbia University? Um, like two years ago. Yeah. So you came from Guatemala and then you immediately built this and, and made your own business? Uh, no. I can't, uh, when I came in, I got to the school like two years and then uh, I come to work right here. Did you come with your family or friends? No, only myself. Do you have family or friends living here? Only one uncle. Roberto, are you currently trying to um, pursue papers to work legally in the United States? Yes, of course. 
I hope I, I can do that, my papers, because it's very important in this country. If you don't have uh, some paper, uh, it's more too difficult to, to work, to have to one better work. So. How difficult is that process? Very much difficult, because now with this government, it's, it's more, more difficult. difficult. Sorry. Do you daily face uh, problems or or do you feel that you could be deported daily? Sometimes I think with that because now we don't we don't know what happened with this this president so mm -hmm. I'm scared. So you don't feel safe in your working environment here? No. Mm -hmm. And you're worried about deportation? Of course. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, Have you seen any changes on your environment these two years from your community here in New York that, that have supported you to be safe to work here in the street with your with your food service? Mm, yeah, I think so. Because now I have one license to, to work uh, in food truck, but no. Where did you get that, that license from? Uh, two months ago. Two months ago, from the state of New York? Yes. Uh -huh, uh -huh. How, how was the process? Was it difficult? Um, I think not much. Uh, it's more easy to do. Mm -hmm. Two more. Um, so what would you suggest or what would you say uh, the state of New York is missing Apart from the government policies, what do you think or what do you wish the, the government of New York could do for you and for others that are in your position, like migrants that don't have documents? Um, um, I wish that maybe the New York City uh, can, can do to, to will the license of driving, because I think it's more easy to transport another place or like that. Mm -hmm. Perfect. And um, to end this interview, Roberto, uh, how do you see yourself uh, in 2013, in 15 years from now, 12 years from now? How do you see yourself? <laughs> I don't know. That's very hard to to think because we don't know what's happened now. Some So many changed, so... But would you wish to remain here in New York? Or to go back to Guatemala? Uh, I don't. I don't know. I don't have very clear my future, but I wish that New York uh, protect the immigrants because I think here the immigrants is very important to the society. So mm -hmm. that's what I think. Perfecto. Thank you, Roberto. In Los Angeles, Maria has just recently become documented. She plans on becoming a U.S. citizen as soon as possible, but living without documents for 10 years has left a deep impact on her life, as she now fears the government and is worried about her career prospects. So, do you want to state your full name? Okay. Uh, my name is Maria de Los Angeles Curiel Mesa. I have a very traditional name, which is where they put more than one name, which is why it's so long. <laughs> and how old are you? I am 20 years old. Great. And when's your birthday? 
December 29, 1997. Okay. I came here when I was five, um, July 4th. And wow. I remember when I came in and I saw, I came in and we were driving down the freeway. And when you drive down the freeway at night, you see the whole city of LA. But what I saw was pure smoke. And I turned to my mother and I was like, I want to go back. This isn't me. <laughs> and it smelled horrible. Yeah. And I was like, no, no, let's go back. <laughs> oh my God. And um, why did your family decide to come to the US? Uh, well, my mother met my stepdad and uh, they got together and I could say, you could say they fell in love <laughs> and my stepdad kept pushing her and saying if if I were to stay there I wouldn't have a future because at age 15 or something girls over there are already pregnant or they ran away from home like half of the girls I knew in Mexico are already pregnant and with and ran away from home so my stepdad was like it's better if you give her a better education so from then on my mother started talking let's leave let's leave and not to mentioned that my entire family is over here and we were the only ones left over there um so we decided to leave and what was like the process of leaving like well my mom has a visa she entered legally but I couldn't enter legally because my mom and my real dad had a feud. Like, my entire family doesn't get along. Mm -hmm. So my dad, in order for me to get out of a country, you needed to sign a letter which gives her the right to bring me into this country. But he did not sign it. So my stepdad was like, okay, screw him. Let me just take her in illegally. So he got fake papers for me. And the process I was to go in was in a car and say my name was... Miranda Knight or something and I still remember it because my mom kept repeating it you're Miranda Knight you're Miranda Knight you're no one else you're Miranda Knight and then my stepdad told her if anything goes bad just fall asleep in the mat and just fall asleep in the car and they won't ask you questions so right before I was supposed to enter the line the Tijuana line the long line my stepdad looked at me and he told me go to sleep and I was like okay I'll go to sleep and um, I fell asleep and then we got through we were so lucky that it was 4th of July that it's the time where people think they could pass illegal fireworks so a car in front of us decided to pass an illegal firework but they overheated so it exploded Oh wow! and the, the government officials were like just go in, go in, go in so we were asked no questions or anything but then when I woke up we were in um, Los Angeles and I was like oh, but I kept wanting to go back I was like this isn't me Mm -hmm. And um, did you feel afraid when you were crossing or were you too young to kind of know what was really happening? 
I was too young, but my grandmother was there with us, and since she was more aware of the effects of everything, she was like, I don't think this is a good idea because my papers might be taken away and I don't want to sacrifice anything. My stepdad was not afraid whatsoever. He was like, I will cross her no matter what. And my mother was more afraid of me being left behind and her crossing without me. Mm-hmm. And um, did your stepdad cross illegally or legally as well? No, my stepdad had papers. So he was a resident, my grandma was a resident, and my mom was a visa. So when they were passing me through, they knew that there was a huge chance that they might lose their papers and they might be thrown into prison. Wow. And uh, when did you realize that you, when did you come to the age that you realized that you were undocumented? Um, it was high school, freshman year. Um, everyone kept talking about their grades and everything. And I was always an honor roll. I was never really... Um, they always pushed towards honor roll uh, since I learned that uh, English language very quickly. And freshman year, I was I kept thinking of what I wanted to do with my life and everything. But when I brought it up to my mother, she was like, high school could be the end for you and you might have to go back to Mexico. But freshman year, it kept going, and then sophomore year, and sophomore year, I was like, no, I want to go to school. And then junior year came, and then my parents had to pay. It's so expensive. Mm -hmm. They had to waste $12,000 in order to make me legal. And to top it off, since I entered legally, uh, my punishment was to go to Ciudad Juarez in the time where it's so dangerous. Wow. So wait, so explain that. So so when high school came, you realized you were undocumented. And your parents were like, let's get you papers. So kind of talk about that process a little more. Um, Just um, like more of like logistics. Like what's that process like? Like how does an undocumented person get papers in the U.S.? uh, Well... And since you, there's multiple people who are documented, you know people who know people. So my mother, um, she lo- likes to talk to lots of people. So she met a lawyer. They talked to the lawyer and the lawyer was like, there's a good chance that she could become a resident. So we were talking about residency and then um, they entered the progress and papers. Under At that time, we didn't realize that my punishment would be to go to the Juarez. We were like, oh, we might have to pay a, a fine, like a $1,000 fine to the consulate of the U.S. in order for me to be able to stay. But then a letter arrives and then it says, no, you have to go to Ciudad Juarez. That's where you have to see if you pass or not. Every single step you take in Ciudad Juarez must be very careful and since it was so dangerous we had to stay in a hotel where at 6 p.m it was locked and if you were outside of those gates by 6 p.m they would not let you back in so we were there we were promised only three days but we had to stay five days um i went to my meeting and you had to wait you have security um and then i went in and then um this caucasian lady just asked me one question which was when did you enter the u.s and i was like july 4th 2005 and then they give you either a red or green slip and then that slip says if you are if you got your papers or not, and they tell you, and then they told me, congratulations, you are a resident. And when I went in to get my papers, um, there was this man who was crying, and he was like, I've been stuck here for three months, and they finally arrived. So I, I thank everyone that it was only one week that I was stuck, stuck over there, and then I got my papers, and I crossed the border legally, finally. What do you want people to know, like, who, like who who you are do you feel connected to more to America or do you feel more connected to Mexico or kind of a mix of both cultures 
Uh, well, my parents always told me to continue studying and make myself not above others, but make myself seem like I could actually be a good person in this country, be someone who uh, the people from here could be proud of. So my parents kept telling me that. God forbid that you had that residency taken away. How do you think that would affect your life? It would affect it really big. I have not been back to Mexico, even though I have my papers for 10 years, because I also fear Mexico, because it's so dangerous over there. Yeah, it is. <laughs> I fear going to Mexico. Like, when we were in Ciudad Juarez, there was a place called El Desierto de las Cruces. Right there, you have basically a desert full of crosses and have more than, like, 90% of the bodies. You don't know who they're from. And when I was in, also in Ciudad Juarez, I saw a cop run over a, a pedestrian who was crossing the street. They just moved away the body and continued driving. I'm afraid of going back to my country, so... I do fear going back, but I do know I have family over there. I do know I could somehow survive, but I would not survive to the full potential I was taught yeah. here in America. In Orlando, Karen is a student and entrepreneur at the University of Central Florida who's running for student body president. Her campaign focuses on making long-term impact in the areas of inclusivity and sustainability at UCF, even if her status as a DACA recipient clouds her daily routine with uncertainty. So could you first of all tell me, um, tell me your name, your age, your major, um, and sort of like what you're involved in here at UCF? At UCF. So my name is Karen Caldillo. Um, I am a junior at the University of Central Florida, studying political science with a track in international relations and a minor in philosophy. Um, I'm trying to think. How old are you? Oh, I'm 22. Um, and I am currently a sitting senator in the here at UCF. I'm the College of Sciences seat four senator, so I represent a thousand students in the College of Sciences. I'm also the vice chair of the Student Body Advocacy Committee, um, and I'm currently running for student body president. And I'm also <laughs> the immigration committee co-chair for Yaya, which is the Youth and Young Adult Network of the National Farm Worker Ministry. Um, yeah. Um, and where are you from? I consider myself, I guess, you know. Mexican-born, Florida-grown, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> because, uh, you know, I grew up in Naples, Florida since I was four years old. I really enjoyed my time in Naples, and I've made, you know, lifelong friends. Um, can you tell me about your decision to come here to UCF, um, what that meant for you and your family, um, and if you were ever worried at all of, like, the climate you would find here? Well, I came to UCF uh, when I was a sophomore in high school, and it was before DACA even started. And um, I just remember walking around and being like, wow, this is such a pretty campus. Like, I love UCF. And so um, from that day, it was just kind of my dream school. Like, I always knew I wanted to go here. You know, at the time, you know, I didn't have DACA. I didn't... Um, I didn't have like a scholarship or anything. I knew my parents were never going to be able to afford to get me through uh, college. But um, that definitely didn't make me any less motivated. If anything, it really empowered me. And um, I'm just trying to, you know, get through school and really, you know, live my parents' uh, like ideals of, of an American dream, you know, um, have opportunity. And honestly, like, 
my goal is really to just provide for them because they've provided for me. Um, and I know that, you know, they've being undocumented, they've paid into a system, but they're never going to collect Social Security. So, you know, they bust their butt every day really hard to make sure that, you know, my sister and I can have the best of everything. But at the end of the day, you know, they're not going to be able to retire. And so I think that's one of the main reasons that motivates me. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about, you know, the institutions that are supposed to be fixing these issues. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you name it. Maybe, maybe it's like the, the state legislature. Maybe it's just Congress are not and they're deadlocking over this issue. How have you been able to find support here at UCF, or how have you been able to find support first of all? Honestly. And, and, you know, how do, has it been a welcoming place to you? Oh, UCF has been beyond welcoming. Not only that, but I've joined the Trust Coalition here in Orlando, which is a coalition that's trying to pass a trust act. And it just, you know, it states, you know, um, if ICE were to come to Orlando, you know, they would not be able to just take anyone from our community away without a warrant, which is, you know, making sure that... Um, people are not overstepping their boundaries and that people in our community here here feel safe and um they're you know like for example um we had um uh, one of our council members and even though he's republican like he really understands this issue and he said that he had a, a, a family that has mixed statuses mm. and someone broke into their home and like took stuff and they were so scared to call the cops because they were scared of you know possibly being deported and so we're trying to to pass a trust act here and um i mean the conversation's going really well i think after pulse and and after you know just Douglas and just a lot of tragedies um, here in the state of Florida, at least from my feeling, Orlando has grown a lot. And I don't mean so much the college students. I mean, like the city itself, people who reside here and who are going to live here for a long time, including having such a large Puerto Rican population that really understand, you know, what it's like to be discriminated. Um, even though they themselves have been, you know, citizens forever. So I think it's just about educating folks about, you know, our experiences and what we're going through. Otherwise, like, no one's going to know and no one's going to feel any sympathy and no one's going to have empathy and no one's going to stand with you, you know? And that's what I've just realized. Like, yeah, people are always going to disagree with me and they may not like me, but at the end of the day, if I talk about my issues, I'm creating my own narrative and, I, and I'm putting my, my own dialogue out there and no one's going to talk for me because at the end of the day you're only going to be able to educate those people who are willing to to, to 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 you know listen to you and that starts with like your friend group that starts with you know your girlfriend your boyfriend um one of the sustainable goal sustainable development goals is sustainable communities and you have these people who are already members of the community who are deeply embedded in these communities how do you think the Trust Act relates to, um, you know, keeping communities safe? And, you know, what what influence will the Trust Act have in, yeah. you know, developing sustainable communities, if at all? Yeah, well, no, I mean, we have a lot of farm workers here in Orlando, um, and we have a lot of people that, you know, work a lot of low-paying jobs that no one else is going to work. And so if you just cut out part of our workforce, that's obviously not going to create, that's the opposite of creating a sustainable community. Um, and not, e not even that. I mean, I feel like when you 
take members from a community away. Like, I, I saw this video, um, I think it was Washington State, where, you know, this, the, the whole town, you know, voted for, for Trump and uh, the current administration. And they, yeah, the BBC video. And then they slowly started realizing their best friends were missing, like their neighbors were missing. And so people don't realize, like, in in my opinion, it's not sustainable because, you know, they don't realize the, the, the potential that that our communities have. And so I really look forward to passing this trust act and even working with our administration here to hopefully be more inclusive. Can you tell me about um, your fast that you did in yeah. D.C. Mm-hmm. and what that was like and just the general, what you what you wanted to see done? Yeah, well, our fast was um, a peaceful, you know, obviously form of protest um, to protest the recension of, recension of DACA. Um, you know, when, when DACA was rescinded, they pretty much took you know, all the 800,000 DACA recipients hostage. And so we held this fast and it was really, really different. Um, I had never fasted. And the fact that we did it for four days really taught me about myself because, you know, I'm thankful that my mom and dad had have always worked and they've always been able to provide for me and I've never gone gone hungry, you know? And so purposely going hungry, you never realize like how hungry you are for something till you really are hungry. <laughs> and so I realized how hungry I was for justice, you know? How hungry I was to make sure that other people that were going through the same situation as me, um, you know, that they needed this as well. So it taught me how to really not just think about myself, but to think about everyone. Um, and also those who like who didn't qualify for DACA, those who are younger and didn't qualify for DACA. Um, and so it was a really emotional time. And not just that, but I bonded with people who were going through the same thing as me. And I look forward to passing a DREAM Act. <laughs> Say the DREAM Act passed today. What do you think you'd be in 2030? In 2030, I would hopefully, um, you know, be done with my higher education. I either want to go into, like, international environmental law or into, like, feminist theory or into, like, political theory. Um, but... I honestly, like, I really just want to be, like, a public servant and I want to, you know, still be an entrepreneur and focus on, on, uh, you know, obviously sustaining myself um, economically, but also looking at what I can do to help others. And I'm not sure what that looks like yet, but but I feel like wherever I end up, I'm probably going to be working on sustainability and rights and, and just making sure that, you know, people have opportunity. Crisobal Ramon, or Chris, is an immigration policy analyst at the Bipartisan Policy Center in Washington, D.C. His parents were immigrants from El Salvador and met and married in Los Angeles, where Chris was born and raised. His parents' story and those of other immigrants in his community fueled his desire to explore immigration policy in the United States. Currently, his work focuses on law enforcement in sanctuary cities, DACA legislation, and the Trump administration's proposed changes to the legal immigration system. 
Alright, so if you just want to give a quick introduction to yourself, what you do, and kind of why immigration and your focus there. Sure. So my name is Chris Ramon. I'm a policy analyst here at the Bipartisan Policy Center in Washington, D.C. Uh, with uh, the immigration uh, project over here at BPC. Uh, the, the project and the work that we do here is we largely look at federal policy across four main areas. Uh, one is immigration reform and legalization. The other is the legal immigration system, so the visa systems and um, getting legal permanent residency, becoming citizens, enforcement, immigration enforcement, and finally uh, the relationship between immigration and economics and uh, workforce needs. You see D.C. and people tend to see a very polarized city. You know, people say that there's divisions between conservatives and liberals, uh, that there's no consensus. Um, and what I found with sort of these these conversations is that, you know, when you actually get down to it and you bring in organizations that are working in the same issue space, there is actually a lot of consensus on what could be feasible solutions to challenges like immigration. And it's just been amazing to sort of see everybody coalesce and just have a conversation, come to consensus, share information. And that's just been really awesome to see. And can you talk about, so why are you particularly interested in immigration as your policy focus? What was your kind of motivation there? That's a good question. My, so my parents are uh, immigrants from El Salvador. They came here in the mid-70s and uh, moved to L.A., and then that's where they met. Um, and obviously sort of having that be a very formative experience growing up, how, like, you know, understanding what it means to be an immigrant, what it is to sort of see the experience of my parents try to navigate living in the United States, kind of obviously built in that personal component of like why immigrants are important, why immigration is a critical component of this country. But in terms of really sort of positioning myself into more policy work, I think, um, after college, I was thinking, you know, law or policy work related to the intersection between workers' rights and immigrant rights, and sort of doing that work and eventually doing some research um, as a Fulbright scholar in Spain, where I was studying the development of Spanish immigration policy, kind of steered me in the direction of kind of going, let's, you know, how do different countries approach integrating immigrants? How do different countries approach the enforcement of immigration issues? And that sort of comparative perspective kind of ended up leading me down the path of thinking about, let's let's focus on, on policy research, let's focus on policy advocacy, and right. that's how I entered this space. Makes sense. Um, returning earlier to the work you were talking about with sanctuary cities as we were walking in, um, what do you think that the role of cities and, as we mentioned over email as well, states are going to play in this. Do you see more policy flexibility there in terms of saying, well, the federal government is not able to get its act together and we've got this problem that we're going to be on the front lines of addressing? When you're thinking about hyperlocal, it's important to sort of figure out, you know, what services are immigrants and their families using and how can you best ensure that those services are well-funded. Um, well-funded not just for the immigrants, but also well-funded for the other individuals who live in the community. Um, because what, like I said, we've with the research that we've been doing on state and localities, um, you do hear stories of areas and counties where there's a lot of tension between um, immigrants and, and US-born citizens over the access to these resources. So I think finding ways to sort of fund these services in interesting or innovative ways are, I think, ways that you can address that tension 
decrease it and actually be able to improve relations and the integration of immigrants as well. Um, well, I think my final question for you, kind of building off of that as well, um, this project is kind of contextualized in the UN's um, Sustainable Development Goals, of which immigration and um, positive labor conditions are one, um, with the goal of achieving these things by 2030, which is ambitious for the current state right. of immigration reform in the U.S., but in all of your work and looking at the different solutions that are kind of coming up at various state, county, local levels... What do you kind of see if you had your ideal immigration reform starts today? How do you see that maybe evolving in the next few years in terms of policies you might like to see if you had a wish list? Right. Um, so a couple of things to think about, you know. Um, first of all, workforce development. Obviously, you want to ensure that um, individuals who want to come to the United States can move here and meet demand for workers. Um, that's, I think, part and parcel with, with everything you're hearing uh, with the work that we've been doing at state and local level, and obviously, you know, members of Congress and, and um, have been focusing on that issue as well. That's sort of the workforce. But then immigration is more than just simply people coming in here. Um, you're also talking about integration. And I think that one of the key things that I would like to see in um, and any type of immigration reform is really setting up a formal government body for immigrant integration, either within the executive branch or within another executive, uh, you know, either in the president's authority or within health and human services, maybe the Department of Homeland Security, perhaps. But really setting up a government body that's able to sort of help set up and fund integration efforts across the United States. The United States has a long history of sort of civil society coming in and playing a role in promoting immigrant integration. Um, you know, churches and religious groups sort of form that um, fraternal societies for specific countries. You know, the turn of the century, they were kind of the, the, the forerunners for the system that we have now, which is largely um, nonprofits operating in this space, whereas Europe, you tend to see government offices doing that. I think that there needs to be greater coordination between these different organizations, greater, better funding for integration efforts. Um, and I think that can only come really from the establishment of an office uh, for immigrant integration. The Obama White House did have a task force um, on this issue, but it was a permanent working uh, task force, unfortunately. So that's, I think, the other key thing in sort of incorporating and, and bringing in a role. And then finally, you have, um, you know, you do have law enforcement. This is going to be a very tricky issue for the reasons that we just discussed with, with sanctuary cities. But I think what people can come to the conclusion of is that um, any type of law needs to clarify the relationship between federal immigration enforcement states and uh, counties and municipalities uh, in a way they think can give discretion to state and local actors to be able to pursue their own priorities. Um, but in where the, the federal government is the primary enforcement agency for the nation's immigration laws. Um, I don't think that you know states and localities should be forced to be able to work with ICE. I think that they should be able to have a discretion to be able to work with their local immigrant communities to promote security and safety within them. Um, and I think it's really important that, that that's part of the 
any type of reform, but I think in, in, in reality, like how do you how do you how do you balance that? Um, and I think that there in twenty eleven, the state of Utah saw a group of um, stakeholders, religious leaders, business leaders, um, uh, lawmakers, pass what they call Utah Compact, which sort of try to have a bipartisan approach to immigration issues in the United States. And and the way they thought about enforcement was um, really uh, law enforcement should have discretion, you know, and local law enforcement should focus on criminal activity than violations of the federal civil code. And it's the national government that focuses on that. And I think maybe something like that where, where you're saying, hey, local law enforcement, you're here to you know, focus on crimes. You're here to, to ensure that communities feel safe and secure. And it's the federal government's role largely to be able to enforce federal immigration laws. So I think that that's another way that you can sort of balance that. So, you know, you're looking at three different components, workforce, mm-hmm. integration, and enforcement, um, addressing different components of what it means to have an effective immigration system. And, you know, I think to, to wrap it up, I think, you know, this does line up with a lot of things and, and what you see in the UN Development Goals for 2030. I mean, you know, item eight, decent workforce and economic growth. That's yeah. going to be very part and parcel. Immigration is critical and key for that. Any type of policy, whether it's here in the United States or in Europe, um, or any type of policy that's interacting between developed and developing countries needs to address this, and immigration is key for that. Uh, sustainable cities and communities. You know, it goes back to the funding issue that I was talking about earlier. Um, counties need to be able to provide adequate services to their constituents. And I think that you need to be able to have good funding mechanisms to ensure that those services are available for citizens, but also immigrants. I think that, and that this is a key, this is going to be a key contentious issue um, in the United States and Europe. Um, but I think it is very important to talk about immigration. And finally, peace, justice, and stable, you know, strong institutions. You want to be able to ensure that um, you have effective enforcement mechanisms, that there is balance in, uh, among different levels of law enforcement, that there is trans- transparency, that there's accountability. Um, you know, these aren't issues that, you know, um, I think not only that, th- that simply don't exist, but that only in, say, um, if you're looking at uh, whether it's Tunisia, if you're looking at countries, whether it's Macedonia, whether you're looking at this in El Salvador, where my family's from, um, these are issues that are relevant in the United States, and it's very much relevant to um, the immigration debate here. But um, the, the the UN Development Goals, I think people think, well, that applies to the developing world. No, it applies to the United States, and it applies very much closely to immigration policy, because I think these are universal issues that can touch on a range of different policy areas, including immigration. While policy experts and government officials continue to think in the long term, these immigrants can't honestly say where they will be in 2030, even if they got their papers today. Instead, their struggle is a daily one, one that leaves little room for planning and dreaming. This podcast and story was put together by four Georgetown students, Valentina Fuentes, Morgan Ford, Isabella Narvaez, and Jesus Rodriguez. Our faculty mentor was Anne Oldenburg. This episode was produced by Morgan Ford and Jesus Rodriguez. Special thanks goes to the International Center for Journalists and the United Nations Foundation for Training. Please share this project on social media and across your network. It really does help. This is Isabella Narvaez saying goodbye. Thank you for listening.